Father, we ask that you would be present this morning. We ask that you would be with us, that, that um, as we sit and study your word and contemplate the truth of your gospel, that um, the meditations of our hearts, the words of our mouth, they would be acceptable to you. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would be our interpreter. Please illuminate your truth to us. Please convict us and remind us and teach us. And Jesus, thank you so much. You're so sweet to us. May we reflect and rest in that sweetness today. Amen. So, we are continuing our journey through the Gospel of Mark. If you're visiting with us today and you are unaware, uh, we're, we're going through the Gospel of Mark kind of story by story. At Red Tree Church, we, we tend to pick a book of the Bible and go through it piece by piece. And so that's what we're doing. So you can, uh, you, you, I'm, I'm anxious to get to this. So we can just jump to it pretty quick here. Uh, if you want to grab your Bible and open it up to Mark chapter 3, if you don't have a Bible this morning, um, we would love to make sure the Word of God is available to you. We really, really care um, about the importance of the Word of, the God, of the Word of God here at Red Tree. And so uh, there are house Bibles at the edge of each row. If you need a Bible, you can just look uncomfortably at the person on the end row, and they will get you one. Listen, if you're sitting on the end, this is the exit row at Red Tree, right? Like, you get that extra leg room, but you are the Bible distributor for your row. So if anyone looks mildly uncomfortable and in need of the inspired Word of God, you, it is your job to get it in their hands. Uh, if you're using a house Bible, our passage today is going to be on page 544 or abouts because some of them are different. <laughs> Don't ask me why. They all look the same, but the page number is different on some of them. So um, we're going to be in Mark today, Mark chapter, chapter 3. We're going to be finishing out chapter 3 today. Um, and, and before, as you guys are turning there, I want to give us just a quick overview, a quick reminder of where we've been. So again, we've been in Mark now for several months and so here's, here's the main themes, kind of the feels of Mark so far. Remember that Mark is a gospel. It's the earliest written gospel that, that we have. Um, it came very soon after Jesus' resurrection, um, most likely written during the time of the Nero persecution when the apostles were starting to be killed off, especially after Peter and, and Paul were martyred. Um, that kind of rose the need to, to save and write down the teachings of the apostles. Remember, the, the focus of the early church, the, the obsession of the early church, was accurately handing down the teaching of the apostles. And so Mark is an attempt to do that. It encapsulates the teaching of the apostle Peter. Uh, and so Mark gives us Jesus' life and message in these short stories, very quick not a huge amount of detail. And, and the reason is, is pretty brilliant. Mark is, is written as this book that's meant to be read to the church, right? You can think of Mark as audio drama, right? And so the, the stories of Mark are short and quick and to the point. And the purpose there is that as you hear them, they will blend together and become the lens through which you interpret the book. Mark interprets itself, right? By how the stories are placed and and what happens when it gives us a clearer picture of who Jesus is and what his, what his message was, right? And so what we've seen in Mark so far is that Mark, or Jesus, jumps on the scene as a rabbi in Galilee in the north part of Palestine, 
and just blows up really quickly. He's baptized by John, and he starts preaching this really simple message. Jesus' message in Mark is basically this. Repent and believe, for the kingdom is at hand. Right? So, so what Jesus essentially says is God is doing something. The kingdom of God is here. It's now. Stop what you're doing. Drop everything and be a part of this. Don't think about it. Don't plan it out. Stop what you're doing and be a part of this kingdom. He then begins to back up this message through miraculous works. Right? Jesus, as he's preaching this, he does things like heal the sick and and free the unclean, cleanse the unclean, free the demonically oppressed. Jesus does these miraculous signs alongside his message that gives authority and weight to his message. And what we see in the first couple chapters of Mark is everyone latches onto this. This struck a nerve with the Jewish people under Roman oppression in the first century. They flock to Jesus's message and Jesus's miracles. And we see that the crowd very quickly becomes unmanageably large. Huge crowds begin to hound Jesus. There's a couple stories in Mark that are basically getaway stories, where he's like, eh. you can imagine like the Scooby-Doo, right? And like they're running through the doors. Jesus is trying to get away from the crowds. It gets crazy really quickly. Because Jesus' ministry garners so much attention, it very quickly garners attention from the religious leaders of the day, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the essentially the pastors or the elders over the Jewish people, the people who are keeping the Jewish faith, become interested in this rabbi very quickly. And you see essentially this escalation of conflict where they show up and they go, oh, this guy might be the Messiah. This might be the, the promised one who's going to restore God's people. And then Jesus refuses to fit into their mold and their expectation of what that Messiah would be like. And it grows in conflict where they're like, you keep doing these miracles, but you're not doing them the way you should. And it's back and forth and back and forth until Jesus finally gets angry and he kind of sets off the powder keg and he just goes, you guys don't get it. I'm not doing this. I'm not going to play your stupid game. And he kind of separates himself from the religious authorities. And what we find is that doesn't slow down his message at all. The crowds keep growing in spite of the fact that Jesus has stepped out from under the authority of the established rabbinic system and religious system of his day. In fact, the next story says the crowds are so large that Jesus is worried about being crushed by them. And so things get so big, and this, is, this brings us up to last week, where uh, Jesus starts to divvy up the work. There's so much work to be done, so much to be declared, so much to be taught, so many to be freed and healed, that Jesus takes some of his followers, some of the people who are truly sold on the message, who are all in, who are not taking from Jesus or picking him apart, some of the people who are all in, and he essentially inaugurates the church, right? He begins to define what the church is. He invites others to join in the redemptive work of the kingdom. If you didn't listen to Jeff's sermon last week, you should go and catch it on the podcast or the app because he gave this text a way better treatment than I can give it in two seconds. But, but to sum it up for you really quick, Jesus, he calls these 12 apostles and he essentially tasks them with three things that, that can easily just be the blueprint for the church. Is he calls them to be with him. He calls them to preach his message. 
and he calls them to cast out demons. And you're like, now wait a minute. <laughs> wait just a darn minute. I was cool with the first two. But the last one, you snuck it in there. Uh, no, this is, this is true. The, the, the reality is, and this is a nuance to the way Mark chose to write and chose to present the story, but, but Jesus' physical, miraculous ministry, his hands-on ministry of blessing and freeing people, Mark linguistically pretty much just connects that to the idea of demonic oppression and freedom from demonic oppression. And so in the, in the Gospel of Mark, it's not necessarily this way in, in the way the other Gospels, the way, the way Matthew or, or John presents it, but the way Mark presents it, Jesus' physical ministry of healing and engaging people and relating to people, bring freedom to the oppressed, that can't be disconnected from his exorcism ministry, right? They, they go together. And so when Jesus calls the apostles to be with him, he says the church the church is to be first and foremost always primarily connected to me. It's the definition of the church, the people who are with Jesus, right? The, the, the religious leaders even say later of the apostles, they were uneducated, but they could tell they had been with Jesus, right? So with him, they declare his message. They take the truth of the gospel. The kingdom is here. Stop what you're doing. Repent, believe. And they declare that. They join Jesus in the declaration of the kingdom of God. But they also join Jesus in the hands-on ministry of getting into people's lives and helping the hurting and freeing the oppressed, right? This is, this is basically what Jesus calls the church to is be with me declare the truth of the gospel, and free the hurting. Come on. Like, if that doesn't get you stoked about something, I don't know, I don't know what to do with you. <laughs> that brings us up to today's passage. So we're in Mark 3. We're going to start in verse 20, and we're going to read through the end of the chapter. The 20th verse of the third chapter of the gospel according to Mark tells us this. Then he went home. He calls all the apostles. Then he goes home. And the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. And he called them to him and he said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of men and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around at those who sat around him, he said, here are my, bro my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And this is the word of the Lord. So there's a lot here, right? This is a long text. But we, we put it together uh, for an important reason. So let's, let's summarize kind of what happens here. 
And then we'll, we'll go back and we'll pick out a couple historic, linguistic, contextual things that I think will help us illuminate the text. That's going to draw us out to Paul uh, and a couple of his teachings, and, and we'll probably end our time in Revelation, which is always a good way to end your time. Am I right? So, so that's, that's how we're going to handle this. So the story is essentially this, right? Jesus has just called his apostles. He went away from the crowd. He went away into the wilderness up on a mountain. He inaugurated the church. He called his followers to join with him in the work of the kingdom, be with him, declare his message, and free the hurting, right? And then he goes home. I just, I love that transition. And then he went home. It was like, well, this was good, guys. See, see ya. See you around. Then he goes home. When he gets home, and in this, by the way, spe- speaking of Jesus' kind of home base, his base of operations for ministry, which is a home in Capernaum on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. We read about this same home in Mark several times. Uh, and this, this scene of this house in Capernaum presents to us this kind of, kind of crazy escalation. Every time we see this house, the crowd is bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. First there was a crowd, and then there was a crowd so big you couldn't get to the door, and then there was a crowd so big you couldn't even get inside at all, and now there's a crowd so big they can't even set up furniture for dinner. The house is so packed full that it's like, well, I guess we got to put away the dining room set so we can make more floor space for people. So they can't, he can't even eat, he can't even have a meal because there are so many people crowding to be with Jesus. Now this is interesting, his family hears about this, and they think, that boy had gone mad. And so they, they go to collect him, right? And then the story kind of breaks, and we get another conflict with the religious leaders, this time specifically a delegation who has come down from Jerusalem to kind of investigate Jesus' teaching. They look at the fruit of his ministry, what he's teaching and what he's doing, and they go, yeah, you're definitely possessed by a demon, and that's how you're doing all this stuff. You're crazy. Jesus gets upset at that, He responds with a couple parables. He gives this kind of spooky teaching for us about an unforgivable sin. And then it goes back to his family who show up finally and they go, all right, Jesus, come on, we're taking you home. You need to go calm down for a bit until things blow over. And Jesus essentially blows them off. He looks at the people who are with him as followers and he says, you guys are my family, right? And that's the teaching. There's There's a lot there. The reason there's a lot there is we're getting a really cool picture here of, we've mentioned this a couple times, a literary technique that Mark uses called a Markin sandwich. It's a great term, isn't it? So what what Mark does often, and we'll see this multiple times throughout the gospel, is he'll start a story, he'll hit pause, insert another story into the middle, and then finish the story afterwards. And the purpose of this, what it, what it does, this was actually a common literary technique in Mark's day. What it does is it causes you to take the centermost story and use it as the interpretive lens to understand the outer story, right? And Mark actually does, there's a couple times where Mark does like multiple layers, right? Where he starts a story, pauses it, starts another story, pauses it, then he does a story, then he finishes the one, then he finishes the first one. So, so this is a simpler one, but this is a, a perfect picture of this. We'll see this multiple times in the gospel of Mark, right? But essentially the story starts that his family hears about his ministry and for whatever reason they're upset and they decide they need to come pull him out, take him home, time to shut up shop and calm down. And then these religious leaders get up in his grill and Jesus responds pretty harshly 
and then it resolves the story with his family, right? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to walk through the story, but we're going to start, we're, we're going to kind of jump to the center part of the story. We're going to pick that piece apart, because I think that will give us the lens to really understand the story with his family on the outer edges of it. Make sense? Cool. It didn't matter what you said right then. I didn't even listen. Like, we were doing that. So, so anyway, we know that Jesus has this, this lingering conflict with his family, right? Like, there's something that's going to go down. But we pick up the story back in Jesus' house with the crowds, and there's this delegation who have come down from Jerusalem. By the way, just a little Bible trivia note. Uh, it doesn't matter what direction you head to or from Jerusalem in that day, you always come down from Jerusalem or go up to Jerusalem. That's always the high point. Like, we think north, south, up, down. No, no, no. Jerusalem is the high point. So even though they're far north of Jerusalem, they've still, this delegation has come down from Jerusalem to, to visit Galilee. So, so they're down there, uh, and, and that means a couple things. We don't, we don't really know who these guys are except to say that they're religious leaders. They have authority. They might have been more connected with the Sadducees than the Pharisees that Jesus has been dealing with up to this point because they're from Jerusalem, but we don't actually know that. What, what's important to note is they see his message, they see the fruit of what he's doing, they see, they see what's going on, and their, their summary of Jesus' message is, yeah, he's totally possessed, right? Yeah, th- this, dude, this dude straight up has a demon. And not just any demon, this dude's got Beelzebub, which is such a, such a creepy thing to say. But, but the short version of this, uh, to not spend too much time on it, is that this was essentially... Um, one of the things the Jews of this day would do is they would take neighboring deities, uh, the religious systems of the cultures around them, and they would just go, oh, you worship that God? Well, guess what? He's a demon. And they would just make this hierarchy of different demons based on the religions of the people around them. And so Beelzebub uh, is this kind of creature, this, this mythical creature they had created based on a neighboring religion. He's this awful, e- evil king demon dude, uh, and, and essentially his name kind of kind of translates to like the Lord of the dung heap or the Lord of the swarm of flies or something like that. So it's a, it's a major, major insult. They're like, oh, you're, you're not just possessed, you're possessed by this demon king guy and that's how you do this stuff. Uh, and Jesus responds pretty intensely, right? He gets, he gets angry at this. He responds with these two parables. I think it's interesting to note, right, that Jesus has pretty much already established his relationship with the religious leaders of his day at this point, right? Like, they've already said, we're done with this guy. We, we saw uh, in verse 6 that the Pharisees and the Herodians, some of the other kind of cultural, social, religious leaders have already said, dude, we've got to get rid of this guy. There's already plots going on to destroy Jesus. But in the midst of that, while those plots are being developed, these guys take it upon themselves to discredit Jesus, right? To say, hey, you're doing this ministry, but hey, everybody, you shouldn't listen to this guy. He's got a crazy demon prince inside him. That's how he's able to do this. So Jesus responds with these two parables. I think we'll pick those apart real quick. The first one is, is this parable he gives about a divided house or a divided kingdom, right? And this, this parable is pretty simple. He essentially just says, um, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. 
And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. Jesus uses this parable to just refute the logic of their argument, right? So he says, so wait, so you're telling me that I'm, I'm using demon power to cast out demons. That doesn't work. If, if a house is divided against itself, it's, it's chaos, right? Like the Jews know from their own like cultural history what happens when there's not peace in the house of the king, right? The, Israel suffered from civil war that cut it in half and that ruined its power basically forever as, as, a, as a player and contender as a country. So they understand this idea that if, if a house is divided against itself, if a kingdom is divided, things just aren't going to go well. And so Jesus just says, that doesn't even make sense. What, what you're saying is stupid. If, if I was using demon power to cast out demons, I would be using Satan to defeat Satan. That, why? Why, why would he do that, right? And again, this parable is relatively simple for us, mostly because he explains it right there. But I think there's something important for us to camp on here because Jesus actually assumes a bit of worldview in his listeners that we don't probably assume in this space. And that's this. Jesus assumes an understanding of the reality of spiritual warfare in his listeners, right? He, he kind of speaks into this understanding of the world where he says, listen, Satan, Satan is out and he's, he is fighting against God's plan. And why would he ever do anything that gives him losses? Why, why would he be divided against himself, right? So he kind of sets the stage for this worldview that a lot of us like to acknowledge with lip service, but like to basically ignore in, in the majority of our life because it's creepy to think about, right? But, but Jesus uses this, this warfare kingdom language, right, to say, listen, Satan's kingdom is not divided. It is quite unified in what it's doing, and what it's doing is bad, <laughs> right? That's good for us to dwell on that for a minute, because in our modern world that is materialistic and that is driven by observation and scientific method, it is, it is easy to dismiss the reality of spiritual warfare, that, that there is an enemy who, who is seeking to, to kill and to destroy, who actually desires that individual believers would, would suffer and would be mired in their flesh and in their sin. That's, that's good to acknowledge that reality, right? I mean, we can talk about, you know, ex- extremes of that and those things, but, but to dismiss that is to dismiss the teaching of Jesus and the teaching of the Scripture, right? So Jesus puts this conversation in the context of spiritual warfare, of two warring kingdoms, the kingdom of God, which he is declaring is here and is now, and the kingdom of Satan, which is unified in its control and ill intent toward the planet and toward God's people. He then gives the second parable, the strong man's house. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds up the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. What? It's kind of an interesting one, right? Like he moves from like, man, if a kingdom's divided against itself, and you're kind of like, yeah, that makes sense. Then he goes, and if you want to rob someone who's really buff, you've got to tie them up first. And you're kind of like, huh, Jesus, that's true? I guess, yeah. 
robbing buff dudes, you need rope. It's, it's, a, it's a, weird, a weird mental image he gives, but he goes, listen, if you want to rob a strong man, you just go in his house, he's going to beat you up. So first you got time up, and then you just steal all his stuff, and he can't do anything about it. And, and again, this is this, it's this interesting parable, but what we find is this is actually at the core of what Jesus is saying here. This is, this is really like, this is something we need to camp on and understand. Now, I know what you're thinking, right? Because the next part's the juicy part. That's when he gets into this weird thing about unforgivable sins and blasphemy and the, and the Holy Spirit and that. And, and like the, the armchair theologians in us are like, but yeah, but let's get to that part. We'll, we'll get there in a second. But, but, but I, I want to I want to be really careful to say, like, this is the focus of what Jesus is saying. This sentence right here is the primary thing Jesus is teaching in this story. It's easy for us to get distracted by some creepy, scary, or interesting theology and miss what Jesus is actually teaching. So let's not make that mistake. He gives the parable, there's a strong man. He has a house, he has possessions. He is secure in his possessions, right? Here's, here's the parable, guys. Satan is the strong man. The house is this earth, and his possessions are fallen sinful people. Guys, the, the earth has been cursed by sin. People have been separated from their, their one true God, and the kingdom of Satan is exhibiting authority over the fallen and cursed creation. We see that throughout Scripture. Satan is confident in his strength to defend his possessions, which, by the way, in his mind are you, right? Jesus is talking about the oppressed here. He's talking about those who have been dominated by the curse, by the fall, by sin, who are, who are safe and secure in the possession of our ultimate enemy. And he says, who can break them out? Who can free them? Who can do that? Well, you need someone who's stronger than the strong man. Someone who can come and tie him up and then rob him blind while he watches and he can't do anything about it. Beloved, Jesus is the stronger strong man. Come on. What he's saying here is that, that I'm going to go and tie up Satan and I'm going to take all his stuff and he won't be able to do anything about it. That's the work Jesus is doing. This is not a kingdom divided against itself. This is not Satan doing some weird double espionage thing. This is the God of the universe saying, I'm stronger than you. You don't get to keep this stuff. It's mine. Come on. I'm getting ahead of myself, though. Let's keep going. <laughs> After this, we get into this notorious passage, right, where, where Jesus uh, declares this, this eternal sin of which there is no forgiveness. All, all the sins, all the blasphemies will be forgiven, but whoever blasphemes the Holy Spirit has committed an eternal sin and will have no forgiveness. I'm going to be real with you guys. I'm not going to camp here long because you all have access to Google. And this is not a heavily disputed passage. Like, I, I actually thought we'd have to spend some time here until I started doing research and found out, like, Nine out of ten textual critics and theologians I read pretty much all agree on this, like regardless of their theological slant. There's some nuance to the grammar here that doesn't translate well into English, 
But to give you the really short version, and, 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 and by the way, like I'm, I'm 100% on this. I know texts like this can be really scary to us, and they can mess with us. We can read a text like this and go, man, like, can I do something so bad that like, even though I want Jesus, I can't have him? That he'll look at me and say no? And then you kind of do this like, oh my gosh, like, how can I be assured in my salvation? Like, what if, what if I, I mean, like, what does it actually mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Because I've said awful things. You know what I mean? Like, it can lead us down this road of fear. And I, I would encourage you guys, if you, man, if you struggle with a fear of the assurance of your salvation, please, please, please contact one of our pastors. We would love to sit with you and talk to you about what Jesus himself taught, about how secure you are in his love. We would love to talk to you about that. Because what's being said in this passage, it doesn't nuance out well in the English, but what he's essentially saying to these guys is, listen, you are the established, trained, theologian, religious leaders. You are you are accountable to God to shepherd his people, to point them to the redeeming work of God. And you are so caught up in your flesh, you are so missing God that you are looking at the very work of God and calling it the work of Satan. This harkens back directly to Jesus' confrontation with the Pharisees in the synagogue where he says, does it honor God to do good or to do evil? And they stare at him blankly. What Jesus says to these guys is, he goes, oh my goodness, how hard is your hearts to see the very work of God and to call it Satan? My goodness, how could you, how could you miss me so drastically? Well, what, he, what, he's, what he's attacking here is a willful, long-term, a lifelong commitment to hardness of heart. And that really works itself out in the Greek in a way that it's hard to express in English. But textual critics pretty much agree that what he's saying is those who live a lifestyle of willful hard-heartedness, they just won't be a part of the kingdom. The expositor's commentary says it, says it really perfectly, so I'll just read what they say. Surely what Jesus is speaking here is not an isolated act, but a settled condition of the soul, the result of a long history of repeated and willful acts of sin and stubbornness. If the person involved cannot be forgiven, it is not so much that God refuses to forgive as it is the sinner who refuses to allow him. J.C. Ryle says it this way, there is such a thing as a sin which can never be forgiven, but those who are troubled about it are unlikely to have committed it. On the other hand, those who actually do commit the sin are so dominated by evil, it is unlikely they are even aware of it. So this isn't that scary. He, he's basically warning the hard-hearted, stubborn ones to say, you, man, if you stay on this road, if you stay in this row, there's nothing I can do for you, right? So that's that. Again, man, if that's something that burdens you, that eats at your heart, please come find one of your pastors. Please, please, please don't, don't sit in that, that fear. That's not what God has for you. Amen. So the story continues, and, and uh, Jesus' family shows up finally, and they go, Jesus, come out 
Uh, I, I think it's funny to, to note here, the word it uses where it says they came to seize him, that's, the, that's the, literally the word for arrest. Like, they're here ready to, like, tie up Jesus and drag him home and be like, listen, listen, boy, you got to stop this. Uh, and there's a couple things here that we can really easily miss. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move through this quickly because uh, there's, not, there's not a huge point in staying here. But the thing that we miss in this story is this. First off, Jesus is operating in a culture where the ethics are not so much determined by right and wrong, but by shame and honor. The, the scripture was written, both the Old and New Testament, in a predominantly shame-honor culture. That's kind of foreign to us, and so we can miss some nuance to how people make decisions in that day. But the thing you need to understand is, in that day, the family was incredibly unified, and the authority of the family was much more established than it was in our day. In that day, if you, man, if your mama was still alive, you still did what she said, P- pure and simple. Some of you are from the South, and you're like, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, but but that, that is, that is kind of weird to us, right? But, but in this day, the eldest surviving members of the family, they were the authorities. And, and when something would, if something were to bring honor or shame onto the family, that would be something everyone in the extended family was passionate about addressing. And so here you have Rabbi Jesus, who has stepped out from under the authority of the religious leaders, right? He has come into public confrontation with the established authority of the church. This would be shameful to a family. Think about, think about how intense that would have had to have been for Mary, who spoke to the angel about who Jesus was, to be like, oh, we got to bring this boy home, right? Like, whatever's going on here, uh, it, it must be weightier than it reads to us, because Mary had no excuse to not know who Jesus was and what he was doing, and yet they're upset enough that they show up to get him, right? And Jesus shuts them down, which again would have been scandalous in that day, in that culture. For someone to be like, yo, your mom is outside looking for you. You, you drop what you're doing and you go. And when Jesus is just like, who? You can imagine the room being like, <gasps> And he looks around at his followers, at the people who are with him, these people he's commissioned, these people he's serving, and he says, now this, this is my family. Man, there's weight to that proclamation that we don't understand fully. There's weight to that that we don't fully get. And it, and it comes back to this. It comes back to this. The reason I think the story about the religious leaders interprets the story about the family is this. Jesus has stepped outside of other sources of authority. The people who should have recognized him, the people who should have been his biggest cheerleaders, who should have been his apostles going out and doing his work, the people who should have been proclaiming his message and drawing more in, the pastors of the day and his own blood family are the people who most intensely miss him. Totally miss him. Totally miss him. And Jesus' response to that is to just step out from under their authority. He's like, what's that? You don't get what I'm doing? Well, it's kind of important, so I'm going to keep doing it. And then his family is like, they don't get what he, well, okay, I'm just going to keep doing it. I'm just going to make a new family. If you guys aren't going to be in this with me, we're just going to build the church. 
church will be in it with me. That's intense. That's, that's really intense. What Jesus is saying here is that the kingdom is so important, it supersedes the authority, the established and obeyed authority structures of the day, which by the way, those authority structures were set in place by God in scripture, right? The Jews ordered their life around the priests, around the rabbis, and around the family because God told them to order their life around family and spiritual authority. And Jesus says the kingdom is so important that I will step outside of those things. And I will establish new spiritual authority and new familial authority. That's intense. And it's intense for this reason. Jesus is strong enough to do that. He doesn't need another's authority. He doesn't need the approval of the religious leaders. He doesn't need the approval of his family. Jesus has what he needs his own strength, his own authority, spirit of God. Jesus is doing the work of the kingdom and no one is going to tell him no. Jesus has come to bind Satan, to rob him blind while he watches helplessly. And no one is going to stop him. Come on. This is the work of our God who says, I am the strong one. This is, this is happening. This kingdom is here, and it is now, and it is moving forward. It doesn't matter what anyone says or does. So come be a part of it. You might as well. You might as well. There are no other options, right? If you reject this, if you harden your heart, I can't do nothing for you, but you might as well be in the kingdom because it's happening whether you like it or not. This is the work of our God, beloved. I'm, I'm, reminded, I'm remi- reminded of Paul's words in Colossians. And it's because this. It's crazy to me, right? Like, the strong man is confident in the safety of his possessions. He's beefy. Who's going to break in and steal his stuff? Right? He's good. I have, I have a St. Bernard who guards my house. I feel good. Like if, I, if I come home and I forgot to lock the door, I'm like, dang, I should have locked the door. Eh, but I got a St. Bernard, I'm probably fine. Right? That's how it goes. Like some of you have big dogs and you're like, oh yeah, that's totally how it goes. The strong man is confident in the safety of his possessions. And when Jesus shows up, he's just like, nope. I am coming up in this place and I'm taking everything I want. And you can't do anything about it. Jesus showed his strength through one thing, perfect and complete obedience. Colossians says this in in chapter 2, for in him, Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses 
by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Can we back up for a second? God made us alive with Jesus by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Come on. Jesus Christ took the power of the curse and he nailed it to the cross and destroyed it. And the strong man was put to shame. And he could do nothing about it. God is a God who was working out his gospel plan from before the earth was created and into eternity, and there is nothing anyone can do to stop it. When God nailed the curse onto the cross and destroyed death, you can bet that Satan was flabbergasted. He did not see that coming, but that's the truth. That's the truth. That's what we are invited into. That's the God we follow, a God who has destroyed the curse, a God who is inviting us into a new kingdom, a new life, a God who takes our sins, who takes our blasphemies, who takes our hard-heartedness, and he forgives it. And he does not hold it against us. He wipes away the record. Come on. This is our sweet Jesus. Beloved, if you read in Revelation about Jesus, if you read the story of the final battle, it's crazy, right? I mean, it's insane. You can go watch Kirk Cameron's movie and you'll learn all you need to know about it, I guess. <laughs> but it's crazy. Jesus shows up. He's spitting swords out of his mouth. He's like drenched in blood on a horse, slaughtering people like there's war. It's crazy. But the culmination is this, that that great serpent who, who somehow grew from a snake into a dragon is caught by the tail and thrown into fire and destroyed. That is the story of our Jesus. There is no strong man who can keep him from his pride. There is no one that can keep Jesus from what is his, and what is his is his people. Beloved, this is the God we worship. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a few minutes and we're going to worship and sing and we're going to celebrate communion. When we take the elements, when we eat of the bread and drink of the cup, when we do that, we are declaring Christ's death and his resurrection until his return. We are mimicking the nailing of the curse to the cross. We are we are declaring our participation in the resurrection. So I invite you guys, and I invite you guys, partake in that today. Eat that bread and drink from that cup and celebrate the sweet Jesus who will go anywhere for you, who will, who will bind any strength, who will beat any battle to have his people. Now what a thing to celebrate. Let's celebrate that this morning. We're going to do something a little different during this time, we're going we're to sing a song, and then we're going to open up this space. And here's, here's what I want you guys to do with this time. I want us to be together and to minister to each other. 
And so if that means you need to go grab communion and you need to take it with your family or your GC, just like you always do on the first Sunday of the month, you, that's cool. You go ahead and do that. We're going to have a couple people spread around the room, a couple people in the back and a couple people up front. They're just here to pray with you. If you need to go be with someone and confess, if you need to go be with someone and, and have someone pray over you, if you feel separate from God and you just feel too weak to reach out on your own and you need someone to just be with you and pray over you, please come do that. Please come do that. If you need to sit by yourself or with your family and man, just meditate, if you need to stand up and sing, whatever you need to do in this time, I just want to encourage us, take a few moments, take a few minutes, be together and minister to each other. And then we'll come back together and we'll end our time. Does that sound good? Jesus, thank you. Thank you. Jesus, thank you, thank you, thank you. Oh, you're so good to us. God, what, what do we have to fear? What do we have to hold us back? We have you. And you are strong enough. You are capable. You have taken this cursed and broken world. God, this curse seems so established. It seems so real. It seems so eternal. We're so drenched in it, God. From, from birth, all we see is brokenness and curse. All we know is death and hurt and oppression. We've never known a world where people didn't die. It seems so permanent. But Jesus, you're so strong. Jesus, you're so good. You're so loving. You take that which seems like it has the final word on this world and you break it over your knee. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for freedom. Thank you for life. Thank you for gospel. Jesus, thank you for nailing the curse to the cross. Jesus, may we participate in that freedom. May we find joy and life in you, forgiveness and confidence in you. Jesus, change our hearts. Make us, make us like you. Bring about your kingdom now. Use us to bring it about. Trust you for these things. Amen.